Okay. You ready? I don't know, man. <laughs> we'll see. It's going to be great. Welcome to this episode of Profess Hers, a podcast about movies, music, history, pop culture, current events, literature, all discuss the perspective of women's issues and feminism. I'm Allegra, and I just need everyone to know that Misty put footnotes in our podcast notes. These are notes only she and I see, and she put footnotes in them. And I'm Misty, and the footnotes make me feel comfortable. (laughs) They just give you like a sense of home. It's like a warm blanket. Remind you of being a graduate student or something. It just, it makes me feel like... I'm in my wheelhouse. I know what I'm doing. And we haven't done this in a while. It feels scary again. Well, um, I guess everyone knows what you've been doing, which is apparently doing a lot of research and making footnotes. But how was your spring break? Longest spring break ever. Yeah, it was pretty long. Did you uh, go anywhere? Did you go to visit beaches or tourist destinations during your spring break? You know what? We actually did go to the coast for a while because why not? Now it's like I don't even leave my house at all. Yeah. So we did have a two-week spring break at our college um, while everyone transitioned to teaching online, which we didn't have to transition. We were already teaching online, but we did have the extremely fun job of teaching everyone else how to teach online. Um, So that's what our college and our campus was doing, and that's where Misty and I have been. But now we're back. Hopefully... Everyone knows what they're doing enough that Misty and I have just a little bit of time to make this podcast. So what have you been watching or reading? So you got me watching Tiger King. Yeah. Yeah. Which was, I I don't even have words. I don't know how to describe it. Academic in nature. It was amazing. (laughs) I guess I don't watch a lot of trash TV, so it was really amazing to me. I wouldn't even call that trash TV. I mean, I guess compared to your PBS documentaries. Um, I watched I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Great show. Yeah, watched it. And then I kind of fell down a rabbit hole reading about terrorism. So that was Okay, there we go. There's our misty (laughs) answer. Uh, Well, you won't be surprised to know that I've been watching, I don't know, 20 times as many TV shows as you. Uh, I watched all of Ozark. I watched Dead Like Me, Doom Patrol, Succession, which I still think you would like. It's on HBO. The Vow. That's the uh, cult documentary series on HBO. We're watching all the Marvel movies again, because why not? I watched All Be Gone in the Dark. I started reading it. I uh, watched The Office and Parks and Rec, all of it. 30 Rock, the all of it. The whole thing? You watched yeah. the whole thing? Yep. Of all of those? Yes. Wow. Office, Parks and Rec, 30 Rock, Tiger King. And I didn't, I haven't yet watched Grey's Anatomy, but I did watch all of Private Practice, which was a Grey's Anatomy spinoff. Did you read anything? I, so I'm teaching a course this semester on mystery and detective fiction. So um, I read some Sherlock Holmes, some Agatha Christie, some Sue Grafton. Just My students get to choose their own novels, so I'm reading a sampling. So when they do their projects, I'll have read most of those books. So I read a lot of mystery literature. Now I think I'm back to looking for a book that's more. Well, I can recommend some terrorism books. Nope, <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, so I have no. one more question before we start for you. Okay, I'm Did scared. you do any like weird quarantine activities? Uh, Did you bake bread? Did you make cakes? 
I don't, I don't bake things, Garden. but I did uh, definitely, well, my plant, my neighbor did give me a basil plant and she gave me some watermelons that she's growing in her yard. We made some planters and put some um, succulents in them and they're hanging on our back porch. I wouldn't have done that if not for quarantine. I don't think that I have anything else. I know you you started baking, right? We um, started making our own butter. Oh, that's that's right. Your husband always baked because he was a, a chef. Yes. But you started making your own butter. So you went back to the pioneer times. <laughs> well, we got like a little tiny butter churn. Like you can crank it with your arm. And we, because? I, I don't know. Do you wear like appropriate <laughs> period costumes when you're churning your butter? No, I've decided I only wear yoga pants now. That's oh, all. yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> that's all I'm decided. doing. Uh, remember back when we thought jeans were comfortable? What were we thinking? Um, it does seem like a huge burden when we go back to work that I'm going to have to, like, get dressed every day. I don't know if it's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> so, have you been spending more time online, Missy? Yes. Have you been spending more time on social media? I try not to. I try not to also. I I did watch I think that you social fail more than I do though. I, yeah, yeah. Obviously. I I watched that social dilemma documentary and it did creep me out a little bit, but I think Oh, that's on my point, list. I want that's Netflix, right? I want to watch that. Yes. I think at this point my privacy is Oh, it's gone. A thing of the past, but yeah. um we've discussed before, so we're going to talk about women and social media today. We've discussed before ways in which social media is damaged or endangered women. We talked about, for instance, Gamergate. Um, you won't be surprised to know that not much has changed or improved. In September, Amnesty International published a report called Twitter Still Failing Women Over Online Violence and Abuse. So not meant wow. to work there. Yeah. Uh, their full scorecard and their scoring system and how they came to the conclusion that Twitter's failing women, that's uh, it's online. We're going to link it in our episode notes, but the, the, Short version is women experience more harassment, anxiety, and generally toxic atmospheres online. And Twitter has become increasingly important for some people uh, to make connections in a time when a lot of people can't make in-person connections um, in places where there isn't ready access to media or news outlets. It's some people's way of communicating. So it's increasingly important for some people. And the idea that women can't safely access information or participate in conversations or activism, it's problematic. I know at least two women who have male personas on Twitter. Yeah, I know. Just yeah. so they can avoid this. I never thought about doing that. It's not a bad idea. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's saying that you would have to do that, but... Mm -hmm. They get less pushback on their opinion, so they do. So if we go back and look at the start of social media, I want to talk about the very, very, very beginnings, like little pop-up places. None oh. of these things still exist oh. anymore. Oh, I see. Yeah, no. Those, the 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 foundlings of, of social media were ways to check out women, right? And then yes. we got Friendster and MySpace, which were ways to supposedly find your friends and network with them. But yeah, no. 
Yeah, so I went back and looked at, like, all these old articles, and um, I found one from the Harvard Crimson Review, which was just amazing, talking about Zuckerberg and the launch of Facebook. Mm-hmm. And before Facebook, it was Fates, sorry, before Facebook, it was Face Mash. Mm-hmm. So it was built just to rate the attractiveness, hot or not, of other students. I mean, can you even imagine... I mean, I can't imagine because I was there for hot or not. So, um, <laughs> yes. But, I, I mean, within your community where you have a high likelihood of seeing someone you know, no. That that would be horrible. Imagine setting up, like, a TCC professor's hot or not. <laughs> like, that would be horrible. I have no appropriate <laughs> response to that. So, like, reading this to me, the whole thing really has misogyny just built into the roots of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to go into the whole history of Facebook. You guys can look at that or watch a movie. The Justin Timberlake movie. Um, but Face Mash is an early version of Facebook. Facebook becomes insanely popular, insanely fast. Do you remember when Facebook used to have a, have a college email? Absolutely. Yes, mm-hmm. I remember when Facebook Facebook came to my college. I see I was this will not surprise you. I was late to it. Really? You? <laughs> I don't think I had Facebook till grad school. Uh no, we we couldn't have had it till grad school, right? We graduated from college in 2004 and that's when it started. And so um, I'm a little behind you because of my so, birthday. So, uh well, I graduated from college in 2004, so I couldn't get it until grad school. Plus the but the, my graduate, the point where I went to graduate school is much bigger, so it got Facebook a lot sooner. Oh, that's right. You went to like a little tiny college. The Harvard of the South. <laughs> uh, yes, that's what we all know that college as. Well, that's what you know it as if you went there. Um, but yes, and uh, then I went to a larger university, and I remember when they got Facebook. Baylor got it before us, and it was a big deal. So pretty much immediately after Facebook launches, we start to see research being done on it. And this is where I get really interested because we start to see how this idea of social media is affecting the very early and the very young users of it. And we've been able to continue those studies since. So we now have about a decade's worth, give or take, of this research. What do you think it's done to to women, Allegra? Well, I just, I just need to. Have I been on Facebook for 15 years? <laughs> oh my you, gosh! Are you just not doing the math? Oh, okay. Um, ha, it hasn't had a be- good effect on me. It, at the beginning, it was great, but even at the very beginning, you could feel that there was almost like a sense of competition that it was like setting you up to um, be jealous or make people jealous. And then, um, and actually the guy who invented the like button is in that social dilemma documentary on, on Netflix. And he talks about how it was intended according to him to be a way to, to like high five people and make people feel positive and and be nice to each other, but that it has somehow turned into this thing where 
you're depressed if you don't get enough likes and you're gratified if you do get enough, but you always want more and you're comparing how many likes you have to other people. And so it just became this kind of tool for um, unhappiness. But that was always there. You know, people, you know, were posting things that you didn't get invited to or somebody looked happier than you. That was always there. But maybe that's just part of human nature, too. Right. I think this makes it worse. Yeah. So, and that's what the research has found, too. So um, people who spend more time on social media have a greater risk for depression and anxiety. And those are increased if we look at males versus females. So any interaction with social media increases these things. The longer you're on, the more it increases. And if you're female, it's even more increased from there. Can I ask you, is that caused by social media? I don't think anybody is saying. Can you hear my daughter singing? That's fine. It's life now, Missy. You'll hear my dog at some point. I think she's singing about her animal island. (laughs) Hold on. Is she playing Animal Crossing? Yes. Okay, ask your question again because I forgot it. Uh, I'm just marveling at the fact that you have a gaming system in your house. (laughs) That's another quarantine thing that's changed. My question is, does the study account for the fact that if a person is depressed or has anxiety, they're maybe more likely to get on social media? So if those rates are higher among social media users, is it necessarily causation? I'm not defending Facebook, but I'm just wondering. Because I know if I'm, you know... It makes sense to me if someone has anxiety or depression that they might be more likely to fall into social media. No, the um, control group doesn't account for that. But what the study does say is that, again, the more hours you spend on social media per week, the worse it gets. You have a higher risk of harassment, poor sleep, low self-esteem, poor body image. Um, Let's see. Depressive scores go up. And also, you have a potential for body weight dissatisfaction. And maybe this is new. This term is new to the quarantine, but uh, doom scrolling. Are you familiar with that term? No. What is that? So that is where uh, you late at night or around the time you go to bed, you're on your phone and you're scrolling through and just. Oh, and just trying to see if the world's ending. Everything is negative, right? So you're scrolling through Twitter and you see divisiveness or you see um, a bunch of people saying a bunch of stupid things or you see negative stories. You know, um, parts of the country are on fire. Other parts of the country have protests, violence every day on fire, metaphorically on fire. You know, so, yeah, people just scroll through all of this negativity right before bedtime and then they can't sleep. It's called doom scrolling. I'm lobbying for it to be word of the year in the dictionary this year, but um. that's super interesting. All right. There's one more study I want to tell you about. Of course. So these two researchers looked at the emotional effects. This is not physical effects, emotional effects of social media versus heroin. And what they found is that heroin is worse for boys, but actually social media is worse for girls than heroin. On their emotional well-being. I don't have a response for that. Other like that's than that, how damaging it is. Sounds valid. It's insane to me that this thing that we can opt into doing or just turn off 
can be worse for you than heroin. Mentally. Mentally. They 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 had a huge caveat. We are not and, talking about physical effects. And a lot of that research, right, is about what people you know, how people you know make you feel, right? So the yes, but also the, about how you feel about yourself. Yes, how you feel about yourself. But that doesn't even get into if you get onto a platform like Twitter, which is not really based on interacting with people you know in real life. Like Facebook is really grounded in. Your your Facebook your friends connections. are yeah. for the most part people you know. You might be in Facebook groups with strangers, but mostly interacting with people that you don't know. And you're mostly reading posts by, I mean, most of the people I follow on um, my primary Twitter account are college professors or in online learning or or some people I know in real life. But you know that's where you start doom scrolling through all of those stories and the things that strangers can do to you online is potentially worse, right? Harassment. Yes. Um, all those things we talked about in, in Gamergate, dox- doxing. And those are true on a global scale. So we have recent research that women in African countries are more likely to experience harassment, doxing, non-consensual sharing of their personal information or images, and gender-based violence as a result of being on social media. Regardless of your experience, your activity, your credentials, how many doctoral degrees you have, female academics have half as many followers as male academics on average. And women are also more likely to reciprocate. So if you follow me, I'm more likely to follow you back. If you like something I said, I'm more likely to like something you said back. That goes back to another thing that was found in this study, which was that Males and boys overestimate how interesting they are to other people. (laughs) Females are more likely to believe that other people are having more fun and are more interesting than they are. Oh, yeah. Isn't that perfect? Yeah, I guess it's good that research has validated centuries of experience. (laughs) Um, and and researchers have you know have concluded that the same power dynamics women experience at work happen on Twitter. So men are considered more authoritative. Women tend to support each other. People will defer to men's opinions, and men will swing into a conversation, or they're more likely to swing into a conversation and do a well actually um, than women are. So that isn't to say all men on Twitter are bad. Of course they're not, but. Women are more likely to, yeah, women are more likely to have a a tough time on social media than men are. Which is interesting because I think women probably use social media more. They do. They do. But it's like, why are we choosing these things that are bad for us? So it might be good for women sometimes, maybe. It's very definitive. (laughs) (laughs) So researchers say that if you change your habits it can change your unconscious biases. And one of the best places to work on changing is Twitter because it's accessible, it's influential. You make intentional choices. You know, you have to think before you type something and post it. You're allowed to delete it after you post it on like real life where you can't unsay something. And so you might become more aware of your bias. You might be more likely to read perspectives from people who have different points of view you might look 
for diverse voices. You might follow and read more women. Those behaviors can help change your biases and other people's. And just, I mean, if you're on Twitter, look and see how many people am I following who have a different perspective than me, who are from a different part of the country or a different, you know, are a different race or how many women am I following on Twitter, right? Those kinds of behaviors can help you change your biases. It also lowers the bar for participating in activism because you can do it on your phone. So you don't have to necessarily be close to a major metropolitan area to know what's going on with social justice movements or with activism movements. You can participate in many ways online, right? Not just retweeting something, but actually engaging and participating and helping efforts. Yeah, um, that's something we've talked about with our students before. Um, what did we call that? Twitter activism? Mm-hmm. I think that's an important point. I do think we overuse the term awareness. Mm -hmm. But if you were living in the middle of Kansas, Twitter mm -hmm. is a good way to find out what's happening in California or in Texas mm -hmm. or in Florida. So it lowers the bar for participating, but it also creates new barriers because, again, you're more likely to get harassed, especially if you are engaging in conversations that have to do with issues that might be considered political, right? You're way more likely to get harassed. Do people um, have non-political discussions on Twitter? I mean, most of the conversation I have on Twitter are about teaching, so I don't get a lot of Maybe I should follow trolls. different people. <laughs> but if, if a country has a large gender inequity in real life, in offline life, then women are more likely to have significant online presences. So basically... Are you saying that... When you say inequalities offline, are you talking about like access to online? Or are you talking about... No, I'm just saying, like, if if you live in a culture where there are, are big divides in terms of who has power socially okay, or politically. Sorry. Yes. So in countries with large gender inequities in real life, women are more likely to create a significant presence online because maybe you're looking for um, the kinds of conversations that you aren't having in real life. That's really and you're, interesting. And you're right that women are more likely to use Twitter but men, on average, are twice as likely to be retweeted. Of course. You know, another but, interesting thing about this is we are going to have data like that, that we can actually go and dig into, and numbers don't lie. Mm -hmm. We're not just going to rely on anecdotes of like, oh, I went to this conference and this male talked over me. That's true. It's just going to be right there. There will always be receipts for mm -hmm. the conversation patterns, the communication patterns. That's interesting. I do want to tell you about two cool women, though, related to social media and social media history, such as it is. So you went looking for like a woman who founded a social media network, right? Yes. And did you find that? No. You know, if you look for women in Silicon Valley, most of what you get is that lady from Theranos. Oh, um, um, they're Elizabeth Holmes, right? Yeah, there are some women who work at social media companies or who are on the boards of social media companies, of course. Um, but, uh, yeah, I did have to to find stories for this. I did go back into history. You're welcome. I'm, I'm not even sure if I'm going to tell you this in historical order. I don't oh, no. know who came first. But uh, anyway, so I don't know if you know this, but the a lot of people say that the they invented the Internet not Al Gore. And a lot of people say so-and-so is the father of the internet or so-and-so is the mother of the internet. And lots of people contributed lots of different pieces. 
to what we know as the internet. But um, the modern internet was enabled by an invention by a woman named Radia Perlman. And she still works at Dell, so she's still uh, living and working in the industry. She invented something called the Spanning Tree Protocol. And let me tell you, Misty, I did like probably two hours of reading about what that is, and I don't know what that is. I've never even heard that phrase. Say it again. You can Google it. Spanning Tree Protocol. It's obviously a very technical computer science related term. It is fundamental to the operation of networking computers. That is all I can tell you. (laughs) And this is why we do not have a social media empire. It's also why we're not computer science historians. But she was born in 1951. Her mother was a mathematician. They called her a mathematician, but she was actually a computer programmer herself. And Radia doesn't really like calling herself the mother of the Internet. Sometimes people call her that. She said, I did indeed make some fundamental contributions to the underlying infrastructure. But no That's single very modest. <laughs> but no single technology really caused the Internet to succeed. And sometimes things get invented multiple times until the time just happens to be right. The thing that happened to be there at the right time isn't necessarily better than the other ones. Yeah, so a lot of hedging there. But she did invent the Spanning Tree Protocol, and it is fundamental to networking of computers. In her first computer programming class, she says she felt behind. Other people were talking, and she didn't understand what was going on. And she said, I felt like I would never catch up to those other people who seemed to know more. And so... That really struck me because I've definitely felt that way, right? You get into a room and everybody seems smarter than you and you don't, not only do I not know what they're saying, but I'm never going to catch up to what they're saying. But then she ends up. Every team's meeting we go to. But then she ended up, you know, inventing something that enabled the modern internet. And that would have been in the 1970s? 70s. 70s. Okay. You're asking me to do math. Sorry. Uh, yes, yeah, seventy. You said in fifty-one. So she was yes. So she attended MIT, and when she did, the number of female students was actually restricted um, to how many wow. pe- how many women could fit in the women's dorm. So basically, they had a certain number of beds for women, and that's the only that's the maximum number of women who could be admitted to MIT at the time. She we est- can't build a new dorm. She estimates about fifty out of a thousand students in a class there were female. So as a math major at MIT, she rarely saw other women in class. And when she did, they stuck out to her as being uh, of that other gender. And then she kind of had to remember she's that other gender. She was just used to being in a sea of men, basically. And she was just kind of used to being the resident female in most interactions that she had in her academic career. So she was interviewed by The Atlantic and they asked her, in what ways would you say that attitudes toward women have changed during your years in the field? She said, honestly, not much has changed. Obviously it was possible to have a job in the industry long ago. Like my mother did in the 1950s. People's assumptions these days are that companies are desperate to hire and promote women and that being female must be a big advantage. Companies do spend money on sponsoring events for women's groups, but actual hiring decisions are based on subjective feelings. And I think there is an unconscious bias. 
where the hiring manager doesn't really see a true engineer if the candidate doesn't fulfill some preconceived vision, for instance, a younger version of himself. None of this is intentional, and it's very difficult to do anything about. So not a ringing endorsement for a feminist change in hiring practices, but her observations are very similar to the observations and to the research that we did when we talked about finding a job as a woman, right? Hiring managers mm-hmm. are looking for someone who fits a particular mental model. And a lot of times that's someone who reminds me of me. So Even if they're not aware that that's what they're doing. Exactly. And so she still works for Dell Computers. And so I thought she was a cool lady. The next one's way more exciting to me. The lady okay. who invented online dating. Oh, wow. Well, I guess computer dating is a more accurate term to describe what she invented. Computer dating. Okay. Computer-based matching. I don't know. I just teach English. I'm not good at words. In 1964, 1964, she created a computer matching system for dating and matchmaking. Wow. I want to see what that looked like. Uh, Her name is Joan Ball. She lived in the UK. She was abused and abandoned by her mother. Her mother committed her to a mental institution because she wanted to leave her abusive parents' home. But the hospital was even worse. And her mother wouldn't allow her to return, so she went to live with an aunt and uncle when she was 19. Wow. Things were difficult in the 50s and 60s for women in England. Uh, They had trouble finding jobs. They rarely were promoted. She worked at a dress shop. That was kind of a suitable role for a woman, uh, but she found that unsatisfying and she left. In 1961, she got a job at something called a marriage bureau. What is that? that? So most people thought marriage bureaus were fronts for prostitution, but they were basically matchmaking services. So if you're single and you had trouble finding a date, you maybe uh, used a marriage bureau. But they had a pretty bad reputation uh, or people had this misinterpretation of what they were and thought they were fronts for prostitution before too long though she started her own marriage bureau she learned how to do it and she said i can do it better so that you may not know this was this a widespread thing like there There were were several of them what okay i have something to go look up later i mean there are match very interested well right but they're not called marriage that just makes it sound like fill out this form your husband will arrive in one week yeah And Joan Ball was not very good at school. She was dyslexic, but she had never been diagnosed. She felt like she was always felt like she's stupid or behind or not smart. Uh, But she found that she was very, very good at this, at reading people, at making matches, at bringing people together, at understanding what people wanted and what people didn't want. So she founded Eros Friendship Bureau. And again, she couldn't advertise in print because people looked down on this business model and thought it was prostitution. So she actually advertised on pirate radio stations in the 1960s, those rock and roll stations that were banned by the BBC that were being broadcast off boats. That's really smart. Off the coast. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, she's saying the people who are going to be my clients are already not mainstream yeah yeah so might as well advertise on pirate radio in 1964 she changed the name of her business to the saint james computer dating service and it started running computer matchups this made her company the first commercially successful computer dating service 
So clients went in, they wrote down their preferences on a questionnaire. Your answers were punched into a card. Remember those IBM punch cards? Oh, yeah. She, she focused on quantifying what people didn't want. That's so, interesting because people yeah. probably know more what they don't want than what they actually do want. That was her thinking. Your matches were printed out. You got the name and the address. Sometimes you got a phone number, but you wrote them letters. I mean, it's still the 60s. You didn't get a picture? You didn't get a picture, and you didn't get any information about what they had listed as their own preferences. So you don't really know if it was a mutual match. Oh. But it was very successful. And then in 1965, she changed the name of the company again to Compat, Computerized Compatibility. The computer program she was running was Compat 1. By 1970, she was using a program called Compat 2. So she's learning more data, more users, more improvements. About a year after she started this computerized dating or this computerized matching, a group of dudes at Harvard. It's always dudes at Harvard, isn't it? I was about to say, like, you can just stop there. A group of It's going to get bad. A group of dudes at Harvard did something similar. They had something called Operation Match. Um, this was used for them to find girls. Uh, and they have basically been believed to have invented computerized dating, but they didn't. Computerized matchmaking. This other British guy, John Patterson, uh, came to America, heard about Operation Match, went back to England, and started a company called Dateline that was in direct competition with Joan Ball's Compat. Um I hear her line and I just think murder. I know. Uh, her company had a lot of setbacks, right? This is so weird, but a phone book misprinted the phone number of her company, which actually at that time was hugely problematic for her business. Uh, newspapers still refusing to print ads for her company. And John Patterson just came onto the scene and acted like he invented this. And by the time he really got started, other matchmaking companies and marriage bureaus like Joan Balls had kind of softened the image of the industry. So he got to benefit from that. He had fewer battles to wage in terms of getting ads and business. He advertised his way, his company as a way of finding adventure. His questionnaires had way more sexual based questions. Women often complained that they were matched with people who directly contradicted their questionnaire answers, which kind of insinuates that the company was set up to help men find what they were looking for without really caring about what the women were looking for. Um, he was convicted of fraud because he was just connecting male clients to actual prostitutes. So she like goes in, knocks down all these barriers for him, has a legitimate business. And then he comes in and does all of the stuff that she was accused of doing. Not to mention she invented this thing. Yes. Amazing. So she, she eventually sold him her business. Dateline continued to be successful. In fact, it still exists now. Now it's an online dating website. But a lot of retrospective articles about the history of online dating or computer-based matching, a lot of them talk about Dateline and Operation Match. Almost none of them talk about Joan Ball or compact because why would they so those were my two very cool women and i'm sure misty's here to bring us all down <laughs> because that's what historians do allegra i just well, we started... two happy histories well, well not no, really though they yeah, both that's got true. that's true 
So I want to talk about a woman who was just in the news this past month. And you may have heard this name, Sophie Zhang. Mm -hmm. You're aware of her. Mm -hmm. So Sophie Zhang was a Facebook data scientist. She worked at Facebook for about two and a half, almost three years. And what her job is, or sorry, what her job was, was to be part of the um, integrity engagement team. So basically they go in and they look for illegitimate accounts or false accounts or bot accounts mm -hmm. and they shut them down. Okay. So this team, we would probably say they're like mid level employees. Mm -hmm. She doesn't have a lot of power within the company, but she does have power to shut those bots down to identify them and to escalate them to the next group of people. Okay. So Sophie's team is going to roughly remove about 10 million fake reactions and fan interactions with high profile politicians, both in Brazil and the U S. So that's pretty impressive right there. Yeah. 10 million. Um, yeah. In 2018, just in one year. Okay. Right. And then her job becomes to do this in other places. And really, Facebook as a company is so focused on the West that they don't pay a whole lot of attention to what's happening in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So it's really this group of people who are trying to kind of police the whole world through Facebook. Sophie, that sounds challenging, I'll be honest. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. In Ethiopia... Facebook still doesn't have user terms in like the two main languages that are spoken there. So yeah, this is more than challenging. This is an extremely difficult and stressful job. So like I said, Sophie did it for about two and a half years and she became incredibly frustrated in her position because she realized how slow Facebook was going to be to deal with anything. So she is going to write an open, well, not an open letter, a memo. Mm -hmm. BuzzFeed got a copy of it and published part of it. Some other news organizations have since mid-September published parts of it. Nobody has published the whole memo because she does have some personal things in there. But if you want, you can get online. You can find like a good portion of it. She is going to say that Facebook as a company either ignored or was very slow to act to deal with the fake accounts that she found and that she believes that the delay by Facebook influenced elections around the world. She says that essentially Facebook is a problem for democracy. She is going to try to keep bringing these things up to her supervisors. They can tell she's getting more and more upset by what she's finding. They are going to offer her $64,000 in severance if she'll leave but not talk. So she turns that down. She's fired, and then on the day that she's fired, she's going to release this memo internally. So I want to talk to you about some things that are in this memo. And So, so mm -hmm. her issue here is that in other countries, countries that aren't high profile like the United States or the UK, that this fake interaction, this fake engagement is happening and influencing democracy, influencing elections – and that Facebook is willfully ignoring or at the very least negligently not paying attention to these things and that 
she has reason to believe that it's impacting actual election outcomes in several countries. Yes. And actually, she is supported in that by the U.N., that failure to act on the part of Facebook has influence, and they point to at least three elections. And so, and Facebook fired her. Of course. So I want to give you some of the very specific charges she makes, because some of her charges are kind of this overall, like what we're doing is bad. Mm-hmm. But then she goes into, here are three very concrete examples. So the first example she gives is going to be in Honduras. She is only at Facebook for about six months when she starts to find these coordinated bot attacks that are designed to benefit the current president. There's an election happening, so this is incredibly important. She reports it, she does her due diligence, but it takes Facebook about another nine months to act. So all told, by the time she reports the time that those accounts are down, it's about a year. And Facebook published this big article about how, like, we took down these fake accounts. You know, we're defending democracy. But what they didn't publish was within 60 days, the accounts were back up and active again. So she's kind of playing whack-a-mole. She's also going to give an example that deals with COVID. So looking at accounts from Spain, she found almost 700,000, this is her, her word, low quality fake accounts that are giving people misinformation about COVID and how it's spread. That content eventually is going to filter into the United States because it's shared from person to person to person to person. So not only is this affecting the country that this information originates in, due to the nature of Facebook, it can spread around the world. Um, In Bolivia, she is going to find inauthentic accounts in 2019, but she has so much going on in so many other places in the world that she's trying to prioritize that she actually didn't really push to have the Bolivian accounts taken down. So months after she makes that decision that Bolivia is not going to be on her priority list, we see political turmoil, we see mass protests, and we have a few dozen people that died. So Zane writes in this article that she feels like she has blood on her hands because she could have made the choice to prioritize Bolivia. But then if she did that, maybe what happens in India or maybe what happens in Ecuador. So she's finding that these are random just attacks or random fake. They're not random. They're coordinated attacks. So in the case of Honduras, it's the sitting president's people who were launching these coordinated attacks on his opponent and spreading misinformation. So this is not a political campaign, right? This is not I'm better because blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah, or my opponent's terrible because this, this, this. This is completely inaccurate allegations, sometimes of a very scandalous nature. So how does a person who works at Facebook get these kinds of concerns elevated and addressed? Do they have internal mechanisms for reporting something to your supervisor and that gets to the attention of the appropriate? Are there these kinds of channels? There's two channels. So one is the formal official channel, which is the one she's trying to use, right? She's prioritizing things. She's flagging things as important. 
and it takes Facebook sometimes nine months to act. The other way that she could get things taken down was through an informal manner. So Facebook has an internal employee message board. And she found that if she could get on that message board and provoke outrage amongst other Facebook employees, then her supervisors would be more likely to shut down the accounts that she's flagging. This hmm. line that she writes in her um, essay, I think, is just perfect. In the office, I realized my viewpoints weren't respected unless I acted like an arrogant asshole. <laughs> so her following the official channel and coming to them reasonably and saying, hey, we have a problem in Honduras. Nothing happens. Getting on these message boards, riling up other employees. Finally, there's action. She is going to say that she like stops sleeping. She has trouble eating. She has trouble focusing. Because she's going to work every day thinking, if I make the wrong choice, there's a potential for people to die. And that is an incredible position to be put in working for a social media company. It's one thing if you're taking that on and you're the president of the United States. Right. Or you're working as a military analyst. She took a job at Facebook. She should not be having to make life or death decisions. Certainly not alone. No, and that's one of the things her um, one of her supervisors tells her is basically, oh, yeah, we don't really prioritize the rest of the world. So basically, you get to be a dictator. You get to decide what's important and what's not. And there's so much global context here. How can one person decide what's important in El Salvador if they don't know anything about that country? Right. Um, so she's going to say, I made the best decisions I could based on the knowledge available at the time. Ultimately, I am the one that made the decision to push more or to prioritize further in each case. I know I have blood on my hands by now. So she's very much internalizing this thing that's happening. And kind of amazingly, I don't see Mark Zuckerberg internalizing that or taking no. any sort of responsibility. No, no. I mean, who knows what he's doing personally at home alone, but no, no, not in his any of his congressional hearings. Nope. It's just amazing to me that we have this woman who just took a data job, right? <laughs> and she's having to make these horrible decisions. And then she's having to make the choice. Do I go public? And mm -hmm. set herself up to be harassed and doxxed and all of these other things that can happen online, which she knows because that's what she spends all day doing. Or she could just take her $64,000 and go get a different job. But she can't do it. So there's a quote here that you put in the notes from her that says, I have personally made decisions that affected national presidents without oversight. Yes. And taken action to enforce against so many prominent politicians globally that I've lost count. Yes. So not only, I mean, she's not just in there, okay, delete some fake accounts. She's making decisions without like a supervisor or a team to rely on. So the, she feels like these are her decisions and she's carrying the impact of those decisions personally and emotionally. Yes. And she talks about how, like, she started doing this work in her free time at home. Like, just 
not on the clock because she felt so burdened by the knowledge that she has and that she has an ability to at least mitigate damage. So she's been fired. Yes. And she volunteered to keep working there without being paid. Is that correct? Yes, she did. Because again, she thinks that this is incredibly important and she wants us to get through the current election in the United States before she left, but she's not going to be allowed to do that. She got fired. I just want to clarify. She got fired, refused the severance so that she could make sure everyone else was aware of what happened and then volunteered to keep working there as a volunteer. Yes. Because the work she's doing in terms of election information is so crucial in her mind that she didn't want to leave it undone. Right. Because she feels like if she just walks away and more people die, is that going to be on her? What is this universe that we are living in, Misty? Oh, no. This is a person who I think is very brave. Absolutely. And she obviously feels some guilt about the role she played in this or failed to play in this. I don't think any of that is actually on her. But, you know, I have the benefit of saying that not being her. And it's just amazing to me that we don't all know this story and we're not talking about it all the time. This is so important. I mean, I don't understand. I I mean, I know the answer is money. Why don't they just shut Facebook down completely? I mean, you nailed it. (laughs) We've seen in the last five years the growth of racist organizations on Facebook. Of what I would call domestic terrorist organizations on Facebook. Because it's a way to grow. Facebook's bottom line becomes more important than, you know, protecting global democracy. We weren't really using democracy anyway. We can get rid of it. (laughs) Oh, my God. Why did you tell us this story? I told you this story because I think Sophie Zhang deserves to have recognition for what she did and for her bravery. I think people need to be aware that what they put on social media can be damaging, not just to your body image, but literally to people's lives. And we need to have more people like her speak out. If we don't elevate her voice, the next Sophie Zhang is not going to want to come forward. Mm-hmm. Now that's true. And it's also just incredibly unfair. I know we wanted to end on a positive note, but. Well, that's not happening. So... <laughs> I got nothing. I should go first, and then you should soften it at the end. I don't know what to say other than delete your Facebook, but uh, that's not feasible for a lot of people. So, because Facebook has made it virtually impossible for some people to live without it. Yeah, there are people in other countries where the internet and Facebook, they're the same thing. Mm -hmm. We have the benefit of having more options. Not everyone does. Great. Truly, unless people start deleting their Facebook accounts, I don't know that this is going to be a priority to this company. So, well, this has been our podcast. This has been our (laughs) anti-Harvard edition. Wow, great. People missed us depressing them, Allegra. They did. Because there weren't enough depressing things happening. We came back. Yep. 
with us were like, you know what? This world is too happy. There's too, too much. I can't even say that. It's too much sunshine in our society. We need somebody to bring it back down for us. So <laughs> success. We came in to save you <laughs> from that unending happiness and delight. Um, but anyway, we're sorry. <laughs> Misty. Yes. You know what I'm going to ask you, right? I do. What's next in your lady life? Uh, we had some homeschooling we're going to do today. And let me just tell you, that's been a joy. What's next in your lady life? Well, you know, also a joy. I, I have a 19-toed cat. What? <laughs> My cat's... How many toes it. is a cat supposed to have? 20. And it got in an accident or it was born... Um, well, it had 20. Now it has 19. We're not sure what happened. And that we're not negligent. We're here literally all day, every day. And we basically do nothing but play with our pets. But we Is recently- it an inside cat? Yep. It's so a mystery. You're find a toe in your house one day. Well, hopefully. <laughs> the okay. alternative is we never find it. <laughs> That took a turn. Yeah, and my sister recommended a book to me called Afterland, and I started reading it and then realized that it took place after a global pandemic, so I'm not going to read that one anymore. Thanks, my sister. <laughs> <sighs> Who needs that? You want to come over and look for a cat toe? No! <laughs> that sounds horrifying. Uh, in case anyone is worried, we took him to the vet. He is fine. He is missing a toe. I know I'm laughing, but we did take it seriously, but now it's just funny. <laughs> What's your cat's name? Fish Sticks. I knew it was something weird. Our other cat's name is Goose. Thank you for listening to this episode of Profess Hers, our podcast about seeing movies, culture, and history through our lady eyes. I'm Misty. You can follow me on Twitter. And I'm Allegra. I might actually delete my Facebook, but I, I can't let go of Twitter. I can't do it. We'd love to hear from you what you thought about today's episode, what you'd like us to discuss in future episodes, or how great you think we are. Which is extremely great. To connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at ProfessHers, P-R-O-F-E-S-S-H-E-R-S, or by email, same address, ProfessHers at gmail.com. Thank you to everyone who has been listening, commenting, liking, and reviewing our podcast. Please keep doing all those things, and we hope we you recommend our podcast to a friend or retweet us. And remember... This is fine. That's all I got, Misty. That's good. This is fine. <laughs>